It was around 2.30 a.m. on a cold Sunday morning on December 18, 1994, when a group of friends on vacation stumbled upon a young woman lying in a large pool of blood in the middle of a quiet road. Her doctor would later say that during his 16-year career, he had never seen such severe injuries. I'm Chelsea May, and this is Exhibit May. Born in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, on September 22, 1967, Allison was a second child of Brian and Claire Botha and had an older brother, Neil. Brian and Claire divorced when Allison was about 10 years old, and since then, the siblings mostly lived with their mother. Allison's early life was relatively normal. She enrolled as head girl at the Collegiate High School for Girls in Port Elizabeth in 1985, and after finishing her education, she decided to head out to see the world. She traveled for quite some time, staying in London for several years before returning to Port Elizabeth and enjoying her new job as an insurance broker. In 1994, Alison Botha was a 27-year-old, tall, well-spoken, confident brunette with her whole life ahead of her. Not in her worst nightmares could she have imagined the horror she was about to go through. On December 18, 1994, at about 1 a.m., Allison was driving along Deer Street in her trusty little yellow Renault 5 she called Reginald. It was a quiet and calm night in Port Elizabeth, with only the sounds of a buzzing neon sign of a cafe around her apartment and the heavy bass rhythm from a parked car. Earlier that day, Allison had spent a wonderful afternoon with her friend Kim and her two sons Devin and Jared at the beach. The day continued into the night when two other friends, Phil and Richard, joined them for a surprise visit. After sitting on Kim's balcony, talking and enjoying the weather, the group decided to return to Allison's apartment for some pizza, a bottle of wine, and a game of balderdash. Soon, it got late and everyone agreed to call it a night. Allison offered to drive Kim home and pick up the laundry she had done at her place earlier that day. Now, at 1am, she was finally arriving back at her apartment in her charming little complex of just six units. Unsurprisingly, Allison lost a convenient parking spot she had used earlier right outside her front door. Parking in the area at this hour was always a nightmare. But luckily, she spotted another free spot about 10 meters down a poorly lit road under a big tree. Even though it was a bit far and quite dark, it was known to be a safe area, so she backed Reginald under the tree without any other option. The thought of running a hot bath excited Allison as she turned off the engine, flicked off the lights, and reached for the bag of clean laundry on the passenger seat. Suddenly, she felt a warm gust of air behind her. The door had flung open, and standing before her was a tall, scrawny young man wearing a t-shirt and tracksuit pants with long blonde hair. He leaned over, pressed a long, thin knife onto her neck, and with a quiet but controlled voice, told her to move over or else he would kill her. She quickly shifted to the passenger seat with the laundry bundled in her arms. At the same time, her armed attacker followed behind and climbed into the driver's seat, turning on the ignition key to start the car. As he got closer to the stop sign at the end of the street, the stranger asked how to put the lights on. Without saying a word, she turned the light on from a switch on the right indicator. The man then spoke again and told her not to worry and that he didn't want to hurt her. He simply wanted to use her car for an hour. 
The man continued having a casual conversation asking what her name was. Allison lied and said her name was Susan and the man introduced himself as Clinton. He said he wanted company and needed to find his friend who stole his TV and owed him money. They continued driving in silence toward Main Street, where the city was buzzing with nightlife. Clinton pulled up near a nightclub called Club Tonight. Drunk partygoers were spilling out onto the street where cabs were lined up ready to take them home. Clinton grew increasingly irritated as he scanned the crowd and muttered, where the fuck is he? Finally, he lost all patience and began speeding recklessly up and down the streets, swerving aggressively around the corners looking for his friend. Without warning, Clinton stomps on his brakes, coming to a complete stop. Allison sat there shaken as she watched a short, rugged young man wearing black from head to toe step out from a crowd of people. The man quickly approached the driver's side and hopped in. Clinton asked him for cigarettes and introduced the two as Susan and Toons. They then continued towards Beach Road. The two men began talking and said they were heading to the suburb. This nightmare was clearly nowhere near over. Allison felt hopeless as they continued driving along the dark outskirts of Port Elizabeth, a deserted area her family always warned her to stay clear of. What happened next was so violent and so graphic it would make this one of the most horrific cases in the history of South Africa. The car slowed down as they reached a secluded area. They pulled off into a small clearing full of broken bottles, discarded beer cans, and ash from old barbecue fires. Clinton turned off the engine and Toons got out of the car. For a moment, Allison and Clinton sat there in silence before she asked him what would happen next. He turned to her dumbfounded and replied by saying that he thought she would have realized that they wanted sex. Bracing herself for what was ahead, Clinton asked if she was going to fight. Allison said no. Clinton then ordered Allison to take off her clothes. Afraid, she did as she was told. He pulled down his tracksuit pants, firmly forced Allison's head towards his lap, and violently rammed her head up and down. As she began to gag, he held a knife to her head and told her that if she bit him, he would kill her. As he continued raping Allison, she stared over his shoulder at Toons who watched from outside the car. Minutes felt like hours as she lay there feeling nothing. Finally, Clinton finished. He rolled over back to the driver's seat and pulled up his trousers. He then called out to Toons asking if he wanted his turn to have sex with this lovely lady. Toons then walked over to Allison, kissed her, and began raping her even though he was only semi-erect. Frustrated, he abruptly stopped, got out of the car, and slammed the door behind him. As he sat on the car's hood thinking, Allison spotted his large hunting knife with an 8-inch blade. Naked and afraid, she asked if she could put her clothes back on. The two men ignored her. As she began slowly collecting her clothes, Toons called out to his friend, Franz. Confused, Allison thought maybe another stranger was joining them, but quickly realized that Clinton's real name was actually Franz. Allison held on to that information while the two men discussed what they should do with her. Franz noted that if they took her back to town, she would go to the police just as the other women they raped did. Toons enforced her to remove her rings. He promptly slid them onto his own fingers while the two men taunted her, saying they would leave her there naked and alone in the isolated area. At this point, Allison still thought the two men wouldn't hurt her and that they were just trying to frighten her by playing a cruel game. 
She thought that perhaps they were really going to leave her there naked. Blindsided, Franz quickly moved on top of her and put his hands around her neck, squeezing as hard as possible. At that moment, Allison knew he wasn't playing anymore. With her last breath, she pleaded him not to kill her. Franz replied with one cold word, sorry. He then continued choking her until everything faded to black. Allison couldn't have known how much time had passed, but suddenly she felt the cold air filling her lungs. She was alive. No longer in the car, she lay bare next to the broken bottles and beer cans on the dirt ground. All she could see were blurry quick movements above her face while hearing unfamiliar sounds. The horrifying reality hit Allison. That wet sound was the flesh of her neck being split open as a man slashed her throat 17 times. She was so numb that there was no pain, but was surprised at how conscious and alert she was even though she felt like she was hallucinating in a dream. One of the men stopped and moved away from her, admiring their heinous work. As her slashed throat made an awful grumbling sound, she could hear the two men talking in Afrikaans, wondering if she was dead. No one can survive that, one of them said. A few moments later, Allison heard the most welcome sound she could think of. Reginald's engine roaring. The two men were finally leaving. She listened to how the car moved on the dirt road as it quickly faded. She was now left to die alone. But Allison wouldn't let these men get away with what they had done. She began using her finger to write in the sand. She wrote the two men's names, Franz and Toons, and lastly, I love mom. Allison then felt utterly free and peaceful as if someone had eased her soul from her damaged body. As she began to drift off, the sound of a car passing brought her back to reality. The road was much closer than she initially thought, and she was determined to move to a place where a driver could spot her. With all the strength she had left, she got up to her hands and knees and slowly started crawling. Instantly, she felt something wet and slimy on her abdomen and looked down with the gruesome discovery that her intestines had fallen out from a massive wound. Franz and Toons not only cut her throat, but her stomach too. They stabbed her an upward of 36 times in the abdomen, purposely targeting her reproductive organs and was also stabbed multiple times in her pubic area. Surprisingly still feeling no pain, Allison grabbed her denim shirt lying nearby, bundled her intestines in it, and did her best to keep them in place. When she finally reached the spot where her car had been parked earlier, she felt exhausted and wanted to lie down. But the thought of her mom gave her strength and courage she needed to keep going. Feeling like the crawling was taking much too long, she used every last ounce of energy she had to get up on her feet. Immediately, everything turned black. This made no sense to her as she was still fully conscious and knew she wasn't blacking out. So why was everything black? Allison then put her hands up to her eyes but still couldn't see anything. She continued by touching her neck while her fingers disappeared inside through the severed flesh. Her hand was now almost entirely inside her neck. That's when she realized a shocking horror. Allison had lost her neck muscles to keep her head upright when she stood up, leaving her head to fall backwards by her shoulder blades. She had nearly been decapitated and was staring up into the black sky. Allison then used her hands to pull her head back up to see again. Using one hand to hold her head in place and the other to hold her intestines, she continued to stumble to the road while blacking out several times. 
It was like an autopilot kept her going. After what felt like an eternity, Allison finally saw Marine drive. She took a few more steps to the middle of the road and collapsed across the white line. Now, there was no choice but to wait for fate to find her. As Allison lay there dying, she could hear the sound of a car engine approaching closer. The vehicle slowed down and eventually stopped. She could see the headlights, but no one was getting out. She wondered if Franz and Toons had returned to finish her off. But then, the car suddenly drove past her, quickly disappearing into the darkness. Defeated, she hears another car approaching. Car doors quickly slammed as she heard faint talking. Footsteps got closer and closer, then suddenly a woman screamed in horror. She knew this woman would flee in fear just like the other people had. But then, the woman's friend, a handsome young man, knelt down next to Allison. He took her hand and told her everything would be alright and he wouldn't let her die. It was now 2.45am. 90 minutes had passed since the abduction. The man holding her hand was a 24-year-old veterinary student, Tian Ellard. His veterinary training allowed him to tuck Allison's thyroid back inside her body before his friend called an ambulance. Tian continued by checking her pulse, putting pressure on her neck wound, and doing everything he could to keep her awake. Instantly, I felt safe. He, he had an air of authority about him that, that was um, instantly the whole situation seemed to have control to. And so he took my hand and we actually developed a communication that I'd squeeze once for yes and twice for no. And he started asking me questions about what had happened. And he kept on saying, it's fine. It'll be five minutes until the ambulance come. You're going to be fine. He, he reminded me how to breathe. He told me to breathe slowly. At that time, I actually didn't want to give up, but only for him, really. He'd given, gone to so much trouble. I thought, I can't give up now. He's gone to so much trouble. He, you know, I'm in good hands. I must, I must just hang on for him. I remember he, I, I got tired. I wanted to close my eyes all the time and he wouldn't let me. And when the ambulance came, he got in the ambulance with me, which was a great relief because I, I really, I didn't want to lose him. Finally, after four phone calls and waiting one hour and 45 minutes, the ambulance arrived. Tian got in the back with Allison and continued holding her hand tightly as they made their way to the casualty unit of the provincial hospital. When they arrived at the hospital, Allison was on the brink of death and doctors were stunned by her awful wounds. She was greeted by Dr. Cummin, who put his hand on her head and told her that she no longer had to worry and that everything would be over once she woke up. As doctors urgently began their procedure, Allison was described as looking filthy and black as a coal miner. Her intestines were washed with saline because her entire body was covered in a fine layer of black sand and her throat had been cut so deep her spinal column was seen through the four inch wound. They reconstructed her neck and miraculously her attackers somehow missed her esophagus and carotid arteries, which were her lifeline. In 16 years of practicing medicine, Dr. Angelov had never seen such severe injuries. To tell the truth, doctors see a lot of things, but somehow that injury made a striking impression of severe cruelty, which one doesn't see very often. You know, having an injury from a motor vehicle accident uh, or a fight in a pub or a club, you name it, doesn't look as severe as what we saw that morning. Here, the cruelty was, which struck everybody in fact in theater, not only me. After three hours of intensive surgery, Allison was still in critical condition. 
She was placed in the high care unit and watched continuously throughout the night. People with such uh, strength are difficult to find nowadays. The first impression which she made is when I saw her through the window signing the consent form with a steady hand. When you looked at her signature, you wouldn't think that such a severely injured person can write in such a uh, comprehensible way, you know. And underneath, she had written the telephone number of her mother. I was amazed. I picked up the phone. He said to me, this is the provincial hospital. And of course, my heart just went into a cramp. Allison woke up later that morning with her mother, father, and hero Tian by her side. She felt excruciating pain for the first time as every single nerve in her body felt like it was on fire. And she was uh, full of tubes and she had breathing apparatus on her face. Her face was dirty, her hair was full of blood and dirt, her eyes were enormously swollen and full of blood. And, uh, and she lay there and, and I couldn't believe that she could recognize me and speak. I, I just went close to her bed and she said, hello, my mommy. And then she said, the police must get the people who did this thing to me. And I said to her, Alison, don't worry, they will. As news of the attack made newspaper headlines, police immediately acted. Nadia Swanepoel was a young officer familiar with Franz Dutrois and Toons Kruger and knew the two were out on bail for raping another young woman just two weeks earlier. She headed to the hospital on September 18th armed with a thick photo album containing numerous black and white mugshots. As she flipped through the pages showing Allison hundreds of various suspects, her eyes were immediately drawn to two particular photos. Because she couldn't speak, she just pointed to Franz Dutrois. You know, you could see that this is the man. Although the police were satisfied with her written IDs, the chief operator told them they needed her to verbalize their names in order for them to take on her case. Allison had a tube running down her throat and into her lungs to supply air until her trachea healed. In order for her to speak, she would have to remove the large tube, which could jeopardize her life. Without hesitation, she wrote on the paper again, telling them to take the tube out. Once doctors took it out, Allison used all her determination to verbalize the names Franz and Toons. At that moment, police knew they had found their two suspects. Dutrois and Kruger woke up around 11 a.m. excited by the thought that they had just committed murder. They prepared breakfast as Kruger used the same knife he used to slit Susan's throat to butter his bread. With the urge to kill again, they started discussing a new plan to abduct and kill another woman. This time, they would carry out their plot slightly differently by throwing their next victim's body off the Van Staden's Bridge, a spot known for committing suicide. However, their plans were disrupted the following day around 5 a.m. when they were woken by a loud pounding on the front door at Dutrois' apartment. When they answered the door, they saw Officer Swanepoel and her partner standing outside. The officers didn't mention Susan's name. Instead, they told the suspects they wanted to question them about a recent rape. A confident Dutrois and Kruger went without struggle. The two men were held in different holding cells at the police headquarters. Once they were in custody, senior investigator Melvin Humpel was called upon to interrogate them. Toons Kruger, the younger of the two, was first to be questioned. Humpel escorted Kruger to his office and read him his rights as he looked to the ground bored and disinterested. 
Humple began informing Kruger that he was being investigated on two different charges, one of rape and one of attempted murder. Confused, Kruger looked up at the officer as he processed what he was saying. He walked in, sat down, and when I said to him that there's attempted murder, not murder, the victim is still alive. And you could see this utter disbelief. He then asked what he meant by attempted murder. It was then that Detective Humple told him that his last victim had survived and remembered everything. The room became silent as Kruger's face turned pale white. Knowing he had no choice, he took Allison's rings off his fingers, threw them on the table, and stated that those belonged to her. He then recounted the events of that day, saying that they were drunk during an afternoon, getting through nine bottles of beer and a two and a half liter bottle of sherry, and had a goal to kidnap another girl and rape them. Dutois was equally shocked at learning that Allison had survived their vicious attack. Franz enjoyed describing every single disturbing detail of what had happened. He even bragged about their most recent plan to abduct another girl and throw her off the bridge that afternoon. Before the trial against the two men could proceed to court, Allison was required to identify them both in person. She would have to enter the room where the lineup was taking place and identify her attackers by placing her hands on their shoulders. A compromise was later made where the lineup would take place in one of the station's smaller offices with a one-way petition. This meant that she would still have to be in the same room as her attackers but would be partly hidden and wouldn't have to touch them. On Friday, March 3, 1995, almost three months after the brutal attack, Allison made her way to the police station. On June 12, 1995, both men took the stand. Kruger blamed his actions on his dark past and Satanism, while Dutois said that Incubus's demons told him to rape all women and kill Allison. Franz Dutois and Toons Kruger eventually pleaded guilty to eight charges, including kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder. In August 1995, they were sentenced to life in prison. From that point forward, Alison Botha's healing journey truly began. She decided to face what happened to her and turned her experience into something positive. She began traveling the world, telling her story in over 35 countries, inspiring other survivors to come forward and tell their stories. Alison won many awards, including Port Elizabeth's Citizen of the Year Award. On top of that, she has written two incredible books later brought to life in a moving documentary called Allison. Still, the most significant achievement she said was becoming a mother to her two boys, Daniel and Matthew. Her hero, Tian Allard, was so inspired by Allison's story that he decided to change career paths from being a veterinarian and became a doctor and assisted her OB in delivering the second of her two boys. She said being a mother is the most important thing she has ever done in her life and knowing it's all about someone else is an incredibly humbling experience. It makes me proud to see that Alison has taken it the way she has um, because I couldn't do anything about that. That's her decision. She either decides to, to uh, make a, it something that she's going to grow from or she buckles underneath it. And that decision is hers alone. Today, 29 years later, Alison Botha is still considered one of the world's most inspiring figures and motivational speakers. This is a quote from Alison. We may not always control the circumstances that we find ourselves in, but we can always control what we do within them. 
you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast. <laughs>